you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours. And yours are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. G'day everybody, Pastor Luke here. And as we begin another episode of the West Weekly, I want to ask, who is the best leader that you've seen, the Christian leader that you most admire? Uh, And what was it that you most uh, respect about them? What is it that you want to emulate in your own life or in your own ministry? Or perhaps you find a question like that a bit uncomfortable uh, and maybe even a bit off or a bit naive. You see, you might have had someone in your life that you really respected and you've got a lot from, uh, but they did something that made you lose that respect. Perhaps they fell into sin or they stumbled in some kind of way that really was very difficult for you to deal with. Uh, It really made you question lots of stuff. I mean, this person might have been instrumental in helping you find faith, and so their fall, their stumble, uh, made you feel like you might even lose your faith. Or perhaps you just find all of these questions around who's the great leader a bit uncomfortable and and you're just kind of over that. You hate seeing the celebrity culture in the broader society and you just can't stand it when it comes into the church. 
If that's you, I, I suspect you're actually a bit like the Apostle Paul, which is a good thing. Uh, basically, Paul is very frustrated by the celebrity culture that he sees in the church at Corinth. Uh, we saw on Sunday in Guy's message that there was a big problem with division and quarrelling in the church. There were people picking sides. Uh, Paul had established the church. He'd spent about 18 months in Corinth. And then as he was coming towards the end of that, he'd set up other leaders, guys like Apollos, to take on that work. That was Paul's plan and God's vision as well. But now people were kind of picking sides. As he says in chapter 1, some people were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Kephas, or Cephas or the same person with different pronunciations, or I follow Christ. And, and Paul's getting really frustrated by this. You see, he thinks that if people are following any one leader in particular, they're missing the larger picture. And that's what he wants to address today. I thought Guy did a great job of really helping us see that the, the larger picture of division uh, within the church and why that's such a big problem. I want to focus in today on how the way we view our leaders is so critical in this, so, so vital. Uh, Anthony Thistleton suggests that basically you could sum up Paul's argument in, in, in one idea, that really he's saying you shouldn't view your leaders too highly and you shouldn't view them too lowly as well. Uh, you need to see them in the right perspective. So verse, first of all, don't elevate them too highly. See the language that Paul uses. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul is saying he's just a servant. In fact, the Greek word for that is diakonoi or table waiter. He's saying that God cooks up the food and Paul just delivers it. And the implication is clear that God deserves all the glory. When you go to a restaurant, uh, you don't praise the waiter, you praise the chef for the amazing meal that you've had. And so Paul wants all the glory pointed towards God. So he says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. So neither he nor plants, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And notice how he says what, not who. What then is Paul? What then is Apollos? As, as Leon Morris observes, Paul is focusing on the function of the leader, not the personality. Uh, it's about what they do, not who they are. Again, he wants all the emphasis on God. You see, Christian leaders are ultimately just instruments in the hands of a mighty God. God is doing the work and he just chooses to do that through his people. They're conduits for God's grace, but it's God doing his thing and we get to be a part of that. And God can use anybody. I mean, in the Old Testament, we read the story of Balaam and his donkey. So God actually uses a donkey to speak. And if I may say this, there's lots of donkeys in ministry. So God can use anybody. So we shouldn't view our leaders too highly. And yet we also shouldn't view them too lowly as well. As Paul says in verse 9, leaders are God's fellow workers. They're servants, but they're servants of God. They're table waiters, but they're in the restaurant of God. And there's something vital about what they do. Paul says, we are the, the servants through whom you believed. We are the ones who told you the gospel and you believed and you responded and now you have eternal life. This is a vital and a significant role. As Paul says in Romans 10, how will people call on, on Jesus if they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
Now, if you know me, I don't like feet, but I can understand what Paul is trying to say here. He's saying that those who preach the gospel and give people the opportunity to hear and respond, they're doing a vital and a valuable work. And so I think of the people in my life who, who played a part in, in me coming to know Jesus. I think of my dad who just gave me a wonderful example and taught me the faith from a very young age and then uh, answered so many of my questions as I was really seeking out answers and, and trying to understand Christianity. Or I think of one of my first pastors who really, really helped me understand grace in a way that I'd never understood it before then. I think of him as the man who opened up the gates of heaven for me. God worked through him and so I'm thankful for that. And so we shouldn't view our leaders too highly or too lowly. There's a sense both of humility and dignity about them. They're a small part of a massive work that's done by a wonderful God. I like how Paul hits the balance in verse 10. He says he is a skilled master builder. That's a term that was given for the key servant in uh, in Roman days where they, who was responsible for the largest building projects. They were the one who was making sure that the tradies were coming in at the right time. They were organizing the whole thing. But at the end of the day, they were still a servant. They were still answerable to their master. There was dignity but also humility in the work that they did. And this idea of them being answerable to their master is, is one of the big concepts that comes through in the second part of this passage. The big, one of the big things that jumps out for me is how God assesses the work of leaders, of those who are in ministry. You see that right from verse 10 to verse 15. Now, Paul likens the church to a building, God's building, and he explains that he began the work of developing this building. He laid the foundation, uh, verse 10, like a skilled master builder. I laid a foundation, and now someone else is building upon it. And he warns them to be careful, verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. That's because God will assess it. Paul explains that Jesus is the foundation. Verse 12, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But then the things built on top of that, God wants them to God wants to see that these things are in the shape and the character and the integrity of Jesus. We start with Jesus and then we build on top with Jesus. And continuing in the building analogy, Paul likens all of this work to the materials used. You can have really good materials like gold and silver and precious stones, but unfortunately you can also build on top of the foundation, on top of Jesus, with things like wood and hay and straw. There's high-quality materials and then there's cheap, dodgy materials. Now, what does that look like in our day and age? See, what are the kinds of materials that we might use that might uh, not be what God wants us to do? One of the things that I see is that uh, often there are churches that just don't trust the gospel, uh, not really convinced that it will work on its own, and so they add to it. We start with this foundation, but then we add all of this other stuff we, to, to jazz up the gospel. We smoke machines and rock concerts and manipulating people's emotions because we're not convinced that the gospel will work on its own. And so we have to uh, obscure it by putting in all these other things that make it more exciting. Uh, on a spiritual level or, or the way that we approach Christianity, we, we might uh, also wonder if the gospel can sustain virtue. You see, the gospel is all about grace, about God's free gift of life to us. 
And yet often Christians lapse into legalism. Uh, we start with the gospel, but then we add on the law. And so even though we're saved by grace, we live by works. That's also adding the wrong materials to the foundation. That's messing up the building that God wants us to make. Of course, you often see the opposite problem as well. Uh, you see, on the other side, the gospel is about transformation, about repentance and deep change, about rejecting sin and embracing God's grace. And yet lots of times people start with that gospel and then just get rid of it. They downplay it. They become casual about sin and hold on to sin or don't question it. Just cherish it, even though it's what nailed Jesus to the cross. Uh, you see, the gospel can be very, very confronting. It, it really confronts our sin. Romans 3 verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, that's really hard to say to someone. And so often people try to make that more palatable, less offensive. And so instead of talking about sin, we, we talk about errors or mistakes People don't have sinful natures anymore. They have flawed natures. We don't fall short of the glory of God. We just have kind of shortcomings. But the problem is, as soon as we start taking away from the gospel like that, the gospel loses its, uh, its beauty. You see, uh, the gospel is about how God saves us, but we need to know what we're being saved from to truly appreciate it, to truly embrace it. Now, as a church, we seek to tell the gospel as well. But one of the other temptations we might have is to avoid the specific sins of our age. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty all-encompassing and confronting list, particularly in our culture. And so people will try to remove some of these things. So when Paul talks about uh, practicing homosexuality, they might say he's actually talking about pedophilia or people just say flat out that this is outdated and morality has moved on. That's, that's taking away from the gospel. That's what liberal churches will do. And yet more conservative churches like ours can still stuff up this passage too. I mean, we might preach about homosexuality, but we might ignore other sins as well. We might ignore Paul's rebuke to the greedy, even though we always want more. We might overlook his comment about reviling, even though it's so tempting within ourselves to critique and criticize others. It makes us feel so much better. Timothy Keller writes, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. Hashtag oofed. You see, the gospel is supposed to confront us, confront all of us. And if we're not willing to hear the gospel's challenge, then we also won't receive the gospel's promise. We can start with the gospel. We have to continue on with it. That's how we stay true. That's what we must do. And so there's lots of ways in which we can build badly. And God says here that there are consequences for this. You see, God will assess and judge the work of those who are in ministry, those who lead. Verse 13, Paul says, Each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
just the other day, I heard about an apartment in Frankston, apartment block. that's basically a fire trap. There's polystyrene in the walls with really dodgy, flammable cladding around it. Uh, the guy who built the place got deregistered. It was so badly done. Uh, you see, fire would reveal the quality of their work and the quality of the materials. Dodgy materials, dodgy work, dodgy builder. And that's the picture we're getting here. You see, God assesses the ministry of his people, the work of those uh, pastors and leaders and so on, the work of the church as a whole. And God's assessment is searing, it's searching, it's exacting, it's done in fire and heat. And then there's a, a reckoning, there's rewards or loss. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That's very, very strong language. He's saying that those who build badly won't necessarily lose their salvation. They'll remain saved, but only as through fire. It's it's like they've just scraped through. Their clothes are singed with the flames of hell. That's full on, right? And it's very unusual for us to hear about this kind of idea. But he's really trying to impress upon us the importance of ministry, of of how we present the gospel, of how we teach God's truth. This is life and death stuff, eternal life and eternal death. That's how important it is. I mean, I might be saved, but if I don't present God's truth correctly, then someone else might not be saved. I might deny someone the opportunity of responding to the gospel because I don't present it properly, because I don't tell them exactly what God requires as their Lord. They can't have God as their saviour because they're not given the opportunity truly to see what God demands. It's pretty heavy stuff. I've got a friend, a mentor in ministry, whose son is gay. Not too long ago, his son came to him and said, look, I want, I want to get married. And he invited his father to the wedding. And my mate was in a real quandary. What should he do? I mean, he loves his son. And he knew that if he didn't go to the wedding, this could irreparably break their relationship. But he also believes what the Bible says And he felt like if he went to this wedding, it would be like him saying he condoned this sin, what God calls a sin. He would just be condoning that, going along with that. And it's sort of allowing his son to keep doing this thing without being challenged. And he just couldn't live with that. He just couldn't accept that. He told his son he couldn't go. And he warned his son about the danger of his sin. 1 Corinthians 6 If people just stay in these sins and don't repent of them, then they can't be a part of the kingdom of God because they're they're not truly responding to God. This is an incredibly hard thing for him to do. There's lots of other leaders who would have just said, ah, look, it's fine, don't worry about it. But my mate just couldn't go along with that. He could see that his son's soul was in danger. And so he had to tell him the truth. He had to stand by the truth. He had to give him the opportunity to hear what God has to say so that his son could also respond to the truth in repentance and grace and faith. That's preaching the gospel even when it's hard. It's holding fast to the truth even when it's unpopular, even when it costs you. And for those who are willing to do that, Paul says that there is a great reward. 
Now, we don't know exactly what this reward looks like. Is it a fancy yacht to sail around in heaven or is it a big mansion? We're not told, but I'm guessing it's not one of those things. I think it's something about uh, the spiritual gifts, the spiritual rewards that God has for his people. First of all, I think it's God's recognition. Luke 12, verse 8, uh, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. It's, it's hearing God say that. What a wonderful reward that is. And, and even beyond that, it's knowing that as you preach the gospel, people have responded, and now they're around you, around the throne of heaven, celebrating God's work, God's grace with you forever. That's an incredible reward. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's what Paul was working for. That's what he wants to see. And so when we preach the gospel, the rewards are the fruit of the gospel, seeing people come to faith, seeing your actions echo into eternity. Extraordinary stuff. All right, let's land this plane. I want to leave you with three applications. First thing, I want to ask you to pray for your leaders Pray for me, pray for other people in City on a Hill, pray for your gospel community leader, pray for other leaders that you know of. Pray that they will preach the gospel faithfully, in season, out of season, when it's easy and when it's hard. Pray ultimately that they'll be gospel people. That means that they need to experience the gospel, experience sin and repentance, God's forgiveness, God's grace, because that's the thing that really fires up gospel ministry when we're experiencing the gospel. And pray that... People will preach the gospel even when it's confronting, even when it's hard to say, even when it's unpopular, so that they can truly say God's truth and people can respond to that. So that's the first thing. Second thing, keep your leaders accountable. One of the great dangers in elevating leaders too high is that we start to imagine that they're better than they actually are, that they're so holy and so wise and so gifted that no one can question them. And as this happens, they might start to believe this too. Uh, they might start to think that they're just so amazing. And so oh, I've seen a great string of leaders in the past decade who've, who've been like this. They've risen to prominence and they haven't been questioned. Or when they are questioned, they just silence anyone who would dare to do this. They view themselves too highly. So they lose their way. They start bullying the people they're supposed to be shepherding or they ignore the sin in their own lives or, or even just kind of oblivious to it, which is even worse. So uh, keep your leaders accountable and look for leaders who are willing to be accountable. That, that's kind of one of the first things you want to see. That's one of the things that you want to test. Uh, are people willing to have you challenge them? How do they respond when you pick up something or you, you humbly suggest that they need to look into something? It's one of the things that I admire about Guy, uh, that he is constantly inviting people to speak into his life. Uh, the other pastors and people outside of that, the rest of the, uh, lots of people in our church, he, he seeks the feedback from others because he wants to grow. He wants to stay humble. That's really important. He wants to be accountable. So the third thing then is to become a leader yourself. Uh, maybe you're already in leadership. Fantastic. Keep progressing in that. Maybe you aren't yet, but you'd like to try something like leading a gospel community or something like that. It's an important responsibility. Um, James warns us uh, that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for, for you know that we who teach will be judged with 
greater strictness. Like there is a, a deep responsibility and a challenge, but there's also an incredible opportunity. The rewards of your work can echo into eternity, and that's just totally worth it. As we finish up, I want, I want to tell you about a man called Tom Carson. You've probably never heard of him, but you may know his son, D.A. Carson, uh, Donald Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson is a remarkable Christian leader, an author, written a stack of books, co-founded the Gospel Coalition, a brilliant scholar who became a professor at a prestigious theological college. Uh, He's preached and taught thousands of people and done amazing things. Um, But what's most important is that he stayed humble. He's kept the course. He's kept preaching the gospel over five decades. And a lot of that is due to the example of his father, Tom. Uh, D.A. Carson has written a book about his father. It's called The Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, where he looks at the the life and ministry of his dad. Uh, His dad was a pastor of some pretty small churches, had none of the fame of his son, saw lots of difficult things, didn't see great revivals. In fact, he ministered in Canada during a time where droves of people were were turning away from Christianity. And yet Tom stayed the course. He kept on preaching the gospel. He kept on living the gospel. And at the end of his book, D.A. Carson has this beautiful uh, little section just summing up the life of his dad. He writes, Tom Carson never rose very far, but hundreds of people testify how much he loves them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book, the Bible. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing on, growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers. No announcements on the television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ, the gospel. Help us to build on that in a way that honours Jesus with the good materials and not the dodgy materials. May we build a ministry and a church that reflects the glory and dignity and humility and and goodness uh, of Jesus. Please help uh, the leaders in our church and in other churches throughout the world to be faithful, to be true. Uh, Please uh, forgive us if we stray from that. Help us not to have work that is burned up, but stuff that echoes into eternity. Uh, Lord, um, uh, thank you that we can just stay true to you and that that's always worth it. Help us to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless City on a Hill. Have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.